Welcome to the Why God Why podcast brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. My name is Dylan Carnival and I'm the Browncroft staff and producer of the show. I'm joined today by our hosts, Peter Engler, the Director of Adult Ministries here at Browncroft, and John Amayo, the New York State Crew Director. Why God Why is a podcast where we ask 21st century questions about God that you never thought you could. And today's guest, we have Matt Tebby. He's the co-founder of Gravity Leadership. And we're talking about why God why is everyone talking about spiritual deconstruction? This is something that people are talking a lot about right now, spiritual deconstruction. And it's kind of this phrase that that's used a lot, but I'm not sure if we're all talking about the same thing when we talk about it. Some people use it as a way to describe a process, I think, of what they're experiencing in kind of questioning some of the core things they've grown up believing. Others, it's all about rejecting Christianity outright. And and so I think the kind of going at this today and having a discussion around what does it mean to deconstruct our spirituality, I think is, is going to be really, really beneficial uh, for all of us. And I know several people who have been through this process and with different results. And so I think some of the people maybe even listening today, you might feel like you're in the middle of this process. And I hope this is a helpful podcast for you as you kind of walk through it a little bit. And so, Peter, what do you think about this? Yeah, I'm really glad to have Matt from Gravity Leadership and the Gravity Leadership Podcast and a couple of different things. So he uh, he, along with his co-host, did a whole series on deconstruction. It was, um, you know, as a listener, I had no idea all the controversy, but like Why God Why, we want to create a safe place to ask questions. Our last podcast that we had uh, was Zach Snyder talking about creatives you know, he was talking about deconstruction. And so I just think that this is such a powerful topic. And I'm most excited to hear Matt's take on this and just his experience. The last thing I'll say is, you know, we just recently had Chuck DeGroat on. They've had Chuck DeGroat. They're having very similar conversations. So, yeah, Matt, why don't we get started here? Um, You know, let's just get real. Tell us, um, give us a your background, we'll come back to the definition of deconstruction, but give us just kind of your background with why did you do a series on deconstruction? What happened? And just kind of, I think that'll be helpful for our listeners just to kind of understand. Sure. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, John. And it's really good to be with you guys. I'm honored to be here. Um, yeah, so we started, I can say more about gravity leadership. Gravity leadership came out of our own process of asking why, uh, as you guys like to ask, and wanting to center and root ourselves somewhere firmly so that the why question could be answered um, or asked even. But uh, we just we we decided to do a podcast on deconstruction because I I we coach we coach and train leaders. I'm a local church pastor, so I co-pastor a, a local church here in Indianapolis, Indiana, with Ben Sternke, one of the co-founders of Gravity. And uh, people are are having questions and deconstruction, uh, whether we talk about it or not, like it's, it's going on. And unless Christians and Christian leaders, uh, are non-anxious and welcoming of those questions and actually in, in, encourage them, then they're going to go seek somewhere else to ask them and somewhere else to answer them. And so for me, it was, how do we serve people and come around, come around the grace that I think some of the questions are evidence of God's grace in their life. 
How do we come around that grace and and point them away forward towards Christ so that they don't have to go to somewhere outside the church who will actually take their questions seriously and then get outside the church sort of answers and frames for them? So it, it really came out of a pastoral, like, how do we serve the people we work for? And how do we create this, much like you guys do in your podcast, a safe place to talk about things that maybe we're sheepish or embarrassed or we feel like we can't talk about? church. Oh man, I love that heart. And that is, yeah, that's the same kind of philosophy that we have here that we hope that people experience as they're listening, that it's okay to ask those questions. You know, it's okay to, to have a place where you can engage and, and take, and people will take you seriously about those kind of things. So I appreciate your heart behind that. Um, as you got into this series on deconstruction, how, how did you define it? Maybe as, as Peter alluded, yeah. like, I think that's important for us as we start this conversation to kind of define it a little bit. How did you guys define that? Yeah. So uh, as you ask that question, John, I think of this this map that I've seen floating around social media of the different words, uh, depending on where you are geographically in America, the different words you use for soda pop. Right. So in some places it's pop in some places it's soda uh, Where I grew up in Indiana. We called all soda pop Coke. <laughs> Everything was just called Coke. And then you'd say, uh, I want a Coke. And then the question would be what kind? And then you'd say like Sprite or uh, A&W root beer or whatever. Right. Super weird. Um, I think the same thing with the word deconstruction. It, it, it's like the word Coke. It, it can mean different things to different people. And so you, uh, you really want to be careful about how you use it. But at the same time, it has become so much a part of the nomenclature of our culture that if you if you don't traffic in that word, you're almost you almost can't communicate to anybody. So deconstruction and i'm not, I'm not a French philosophical uh, theorist. Uh, I'm not a, ling- a linguist, but it comes out of probably nineteenth century philosophy and then twentieth century sort of linguistic theory. I'm not really, I mean, it's a fascinating conversation. That's not what I'm, I'm not trafficking on that meeting. Essentially, I'm trafficking on the meeting of deconstruction is when you have a construct, meaning the way you make sense and meaning of reality. Another word for that I think I use is a paradigm. You have a paradigm or a construct or a lens, what you see through to access what's real. And uh, you begin to look at what you look through. This, this is not something we typically do, right? Um, so, so deconstruction then is when you begin to realize the illusion of objective perception, you begin to appreciate the reality of subjective perception, and then you are able to hold your subjective perception up to someone else's subjective perception and to assess and evaluate and sometimes even uh, discern like, why do I see things this way? Why do they see things this way? And, and is the truth in one or the other or somewhere in between? So D means uh, just to take off your construct and put it, instead of looking through it or thinking in it, putting it on the table and looking at it, which can be a really fascinating, exciting, and disorienting experience. So <clears throat> let me uh, let me just kind of go off that definition because I think that that's very good, super helpful. So uh, what do you think are the most common misunderstandings 
with this word right now and what this whole what we're going through. Yeah, that it's somehow anti-Christ, that deconstruction is somehow against God, the truth, dogma, doctrine, uh, authority, the veracity of Jesus, that somehow it's a threat. Uh, That's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is that somehow people who go through deconstruction, that they're choosing it. Uh, I don't know a single person who uh, begins to question their constructs or paradigms that actually chose to do that. It just happens to you. Uh, You you know, you, you encounter something and you get disoriented or confused and you then try to make sense and meaning of what you've experienced. And often the constructs or frames, that's another word is frame, that you've used to make sense and meaning of the world, they no longer work. And uh, the way God's designed us, I mean, uh, I'm not a neuroscientist either, uh, but I am drinking my cup of coffee, uh, John, right now. I feel like I can do anything. You slept, you slept uh, at a Holiday Inn too, so yeah. <laughs> I, well, even better, my own, my own bed. So, you know, but neuroscience, we have parts of our brains that we don't want to change our mind. What I mean by is I, I don't want to um, learn that I was wrong with a recipe for how to make a hamburger helper meal. That's not what I'm talking about. We don't want to uh, go from these huge constructs that define our culture. We don't want to uh, go from being a Democrat to a Republican. Like, we, we will do anything other than that be- because of the way God's uh, wired our brains to work efficiently and uh, most helpfully. So uh, I don't know. So the second thing is I don't know anybody who chooses this. It's, it's actually not a very enjoyable experience for most people. You lose friends. Sometimes you have to lose your church. Uh, sometimes people uh, look at you like you're crazy. Sometimes you get uh, crazy emails from people who listen to your deconstruction podcast. So it's not, it's not really fun for anybody to go through. So that, I think that's the second misconception. And I think the third misconception that I'm most interested in is that somehow deconstruction is virtuous in and of itself. That, uh, and this is, I mean, in a pejorative, caricatured way, this is sort of the worst of how we uh, like to think about postmodernity. It's just like seeing through everything. Everything is just a construct. Everything is an illusion. Everything is just cultural. And so you just, you're constantly seeing through everything, and then there's just nothing to, to look at. Uh, and so I, I think deconstruction is, can be helpful, is usually inevitable at some point in your life. But unless it's rooted or grounded in something that's ontologically or metaphysically true, it, it can it can like spin you around and then throw you into a, you know, a black hole. I mean, it can be it can just set you it can make you untethered from any grounding, centering, orienting truth. And so I, I just I don't think deconstruction is virtuous in and of itself. That'd be the third Maybe misconception. Yeah. Wow. So there's so much complexity in what you're talking about there, because on one hand, you're saying, you know, this is a process that that people aren't choosing on their own. They're naturally being led through it. And it's a very difficult process. At the same time, there's this sense of um, a lot of people enter this and think of it in our society. There's a section of people now who are kind of like really proud of this process and saying everybody should go through this process, um, you know, of deconstructing what they believe. So you're 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 painting really kind of this this complex situation that's that people are experiencing, I feel like. And. And a lot of that is rooted in their own personal faith. One of the one of the 
things that's most central to us, you know, is our faith. Um, and that's a scary place to go. And I think yes. a lot of us enter that that faith from different angles. You know, some of us have been raised in environments where we've been surrounded by this our whole lives. And so we start to question that. Um, and some of us have come along that later in life. What's your story of faith and how did how, you know, did you get to the place where you are in kind of coming to grips with some of these questions about Jesus? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, w- I was raised sort of in a, a nominal Roman Catholic family, uh, you know, in the 80s and early 90s. And uh, God and Jesus for me were like true things that uh, certain kinds of people like to talk about. So God was in that kind of that Shakespeare or uh, Aristotle category, you know, like you, you had their works on your shelf if you were a person who uh, was smart or interesting. But in terms of uh, actual reality and day-to-day life, whatever. Yeah. The other curious thing about my faith growing up was that uh, I, I didn't necessarily uh, disbelieve in any uh, of like the Apostles' Creed, you know? So if if pressed, I'd be like, yeah, Jesus died for my sins and rose from the grave. It just had no impact on my day-to-day life. I just didn't understand. I didn't understand how to follow Jesus, uh, really. And then I, I came into contact with some Christians in college um, uh, who were a part of a college ministry on my campus that treated me differently. Um, I, I, the, re- the quality of relationship that I, and friendship I had with him completely. Now this is, I mean, this is, uh, a, a, this is actually impacts what we do with gravity because at the time I didn't realize that my, my frameworks for who are people, what are they for? What is reality? They were all being deconstructed not because I was going to like these real highbrow lectures or reading, you know, French philosophers. No, it was because I was encountering the embodied love of Jesus Christ mediated through his body. Mm. And, and I didn't have a category or framework to make sense of that love. And so I had to go looking for new frames to make sense of what I was experiencing. Um, and uh, by the way, this is a deeply biblical process. I mean, we could spend a whole podcast. The entire Gospel of John is Jesus teaching in ways that lead people into deconstruction. And they basically do two things. They either want to kill him because there's no way they're deconstructing their faith, or they learn to follow him. Uh, and then uh, and then when the deconstruction isn't bat- like isn't disorienting enough, he's, he does crazy things like eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everybody leaves. Right? So like the entire, I mean, in all the Gospels, Jesus is teaching in a way where people can't they can't fathom what he's saying. They're not stupid. They just don't have the frames to get it. And they either have to repent, meaning take off their frame, you know, and learn. This is all the amazement and astonished and asking themselves, who could this be? They have to reconstruct a frame that makes sense or yeah, they plan, they plan to kill him because we don't want to change our mind, right? We don't want to do that. So anyway, the love that I encounter with these guys uh, led me to look for a more coherent story to understand what I was experiencing. Again, I mean, this happens in the book of Acts, right? So like, I think as, uh, I don't know if you guys would identify as evangelicals, but you work for Crew John and they work with a lot of evangelicals. And so like, I think the way we want to have our minds changed is we go into a nice crew Bible study led by John and uh, we study the Old Testament for 44 weeks and we uh, come out with an inductive, and the, <laughs> the, 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 I mean, you know, I'm, pre- I'm telling you, uh, 
this is the way logic works. We come out with an inductively uh, produced, deduced study of how uh, uh, the Gentiles are no longer, you know, they no longer have to hold by Old Testament law when it comes to dietary restrictions. You know, and, but in the Bible, it's Peter having a vision where he has to make sense of like, what, what am I experiencing here? Like, this is, comp- there's no way I'll do this. And then he, you know, has to take and eat. And then he has to go into a Gentile's house. And then he's like, the Holy Spirit's breaking out. And so we see actually in real time, Peter has all his ideas of what it means to be in the covenant community, deconstructed by God through what he's experiencing. And it's a holy process. God is orchestrating and ordaining it. And he's bringing him into a place of greater faithfulness. So I feel like this happens all through the New Testament, over and over and over again in the narratives. And I think it's still ongoing today. Uh, So for me then, I I had to make sense. I had to come to a more compelling story of of how to make sense of the, the love and the reality and the truth I encountered in these relationships. Um, and I, uh, they followed Jesus, so I started following Jesus to investigate this story. I mean, it wasn't that conscious, but it was kind of like, well, you guys know a better way to live. And, you know, I've, I've thoroughly got a C-minus life, so I, I probably could learn a bit from you guys. So I just started following them, and over time, over time, the uh, the intellectual sort of understanding and the ontological or the, uh, the the soulish way of living they began to cohere like it began to line up for me and so that that's a big part of my story is I didn't go seeking to uh, become a Christian I was not looking to become a Christian but God's love found me made the story I was living incoherent and drew me into a reconstructed reality around the love of God Wow. Um, I, I don't think we've had a guest that passionate before. So I, I just, um, I mean, I just felt, felt like in the coronavirus season, I just went to church. So, uh, this is great. Um, you know, Matt, the way that you talk is so wrapped with grace and truth. Mm. Like, you know, and that you talked about John, I was going to ask you, you know, is the Bible pro deconstruction? Well, you obviously just answered that question, but, um, Mm. you know, let me ask you this. I want to come back to your experience, you know, just in talking about deconstruction and even before your podcast, like you have this kind of comfortable, vulnerable, there's no question off limits. And what, I mean, if someone in, this crowd is going through deconstruction who are the safe people that they can talk with and like how do you help what would be some of your advice to help them navigate this because obviously they're listening because i really want to talk about this it's i mean no one wants to go through this but i mean what's some things that you've picked up and learned about how to positively walk through deconstruction yeah that's great but I indicated before that um, I think you have to orient or center que- your questions being asked in some, even if it's a gamble, even if it's like a, how about we just postulate this as a hypothesis and see how it works. Even if it's a gamble, there has to be something that holds you at the core of the center, I think, in order for us not to just get tossed to and fro by every wind of human doctrine. So one of the temptations is we just leave one ideology for another. 
right? So a lot of our listeners, a lot of pe- a lot of people I uh, serve and love, they grew up in a, a, f- a fairly conservative evangelical, they would say rigid environment, and they, they see one or two pieces of the puzzle or the, the one of the or two of the cards are pulled out from under them, whether it's a literal seven-day creation or whether it's, you know what I mean, or whether it's the words they use to describe the authority of the Bible, it could be anything. And once that collapses, because it was so rigid, they just they just flee. Like they're fleeing a burning house, you know, and they run into another ideological camp, which is uh, has the same rigidity to it. Another just kind of fundamentalism, but it's an inverted sort of neo-pagan or agnostic or uh, whatever. Uh, for me, uh, I, I'd say if you if you find yourself asking questions that feel dangerous, risky, unsafe, unfaithful. There's a couple things to remember, and this is going to, if anybody listens to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, I know I sound like a broken record, but that's all I got. That's what, I mean, that's what we do. <laughs> so, like, God cares about it more than you. If the God revealed in Jesus Christ is, is real and true, there is absolutely no question you can ask that threatens God, that scares God, that freaks God out, that he can't handle. Um, so... Yeah, so God is in the center, in the middle of your life. He's He is actually the orienting, defining reality at the center of who you are. And so any question that comes out isn't threatening to God. He's not angry with you about it. And, uh, and he wants to meet you in it. He may not answer the question, right? So I'm not saying God's like this uh, answer genie. Um, that's what we want our pastors to be. God is not the answer genie. But he will, he is present and at work in the midst of that question. Um, secondly, is I, I say find a community of people in which you can uh, explore questions bathed in the love of God revealed in Jesus. And what I mean by that, you use the two words grace and truth. And we, we talk about the love of God as grace and truth. So grace being this relational presence, this commitment to, of God giving himself all through the all through the narrative of scripture. And truth, this vision of, of what reality is and how to live in coherence with reality. So how, like the kingdom uh, understanding of what it means to live under the Lordship of Christ. So in the midst of that, if God is really like Jesus and he's always present and at work and he cares about it more than you do, then, then find somebody who um, is more interested in what God is doing in the midst of your question with you than they are in answering your question or getting you to think the same thing that they do. Um, this is, I, so, you know, you guys have heard this before, but Jesus seems so uninterested in answering almost every question that's asked to him. And so what he shows us is, I think, I think he's a model. We think the answer to our question will satisfy our soul. And, and what Jesus seems to think is underneath your question is a longing of your heart that I want to meet. Mm-hmm. And so also finding someone who takes your question seriously, doesn't write it off, doesn't say it's unimportant, but also helps you tap into what is the longing, the yearning, the need, the created good uh, desire of my heart that this question reveals that God wants to speak to or meet or provide for. Uh, because that's, that's, I mean, that's the work we do in gravity. And I see that's the work Jesus does. He always is with compassionate curiosity, getting under people's questions to reveal their heart and then asking if they'll entrust their hearts to him and trust their, their longings and wants to him. So those are a few things I would say about if you're going through this, like finding people 
who aren't threatened by your questions. Finding people who will take you seriously, but also hold your heart before the Lord with you. Doing the work of like compassionate curiosity to discern God's kingdom underneath and inside of your question. I would say that the people who resist changing how they think about God are the people that end up crucifying Jesus. And I, I never want to be, I don't want to be in that camp. <laughs> like, I don't, I want to say you have to. I just want to say like, here's, here's what happens. I think we become so attached and identified to how we think that it becomes an ideology. So we can take real, true, good things and turn and worship those ideas so much so that we become attached to them, our identity and our form formation becomes attached to them so that you can't extricate who I am from that idea. And then like, we're done. Like, uh, you know, we're, we are committed. If we're wrong, we're committed to being stupid for eternity. Uh, we're committed to being sort of and closed off and rigid for eternity. So I think, I think what uh, I'm hearing in that question, John, is I I don't want to. I don't think this is a prescription, or I'm not saying like always. I'm just saying I think this reveals there are different ways that Christians hold their faith. Not just what we believe, but how we believe what we believe. And I think there's a rigidity and an attachment and an idolatry we make of our beliefs that inhibits us from metanoia from changing our minds, not just from like, oh, I used to be super lepsary and now I'm infralepsary. No, not like just the content, but actually the mind itself, the way the, the way that we conceive of reality can shift, which needs a supple, agile, less rigid way of holding our faith. So I, I just contend for that. And then if God wants to shift you, go for it. Uh, so I, I, I'm much more interested in contending for the kind of faith that can grow and mature and adapt Rather than the kind of faith who, at 24, with the Bible degree and the MDiv, you've got it figured out, and now you just preach your notes from seminary for the next 40 years. Well, I I, I don't really contend for that for anyone. Well, and <laughs> or for me. <laughs> well, and I what I love about what you say, we talk about this a lot in the podcast. Like the Bible is far more comfortable with doubt, dare I even say, deconstruction than we are. You know, I'm reading in the Psalms right now and like it's a perfect place to be when you're locked down and when you have and like David sees no problem in saying, God, you're not here. God, you're not showing up. Why are my enemies like and even as you're talking about John, like the I mean, the people that get the most rebukes are religious people. And, you know, it's almost as if. Like, we're so scared that someone's going to give up a frame or a structure that we're not inviting them to go through the process. I mean, is that kind of what you would say? Yeah. Yeah, I totally think that. Um, yeah, I think it reveals it reveals sort of the underlying commitments we've made and how we hold. I, I, I spent almost a, almost a decade maybe a little under a decade as a Christian with kind of a uh, guard the fences um, watchdog mentality, right? So I, I had a list of doctrines and commitments and behaviors that I was constantly evaluating myself and other people on. And if you violated even one of them, you were just, you, uh, you didn't really have the, the faith to, uh, once, all, once for all delivered to the saints. Like, um, and, and what I, you know, and I, I know a lot of Christians like that. I, th I think I'll be worshiping for eternity with a lot of Christians like that. But let me just 
speak for me, I did not see an increasing, uh, I did not see an increase in the fruit of the spirit in my life when I lived like that. I was able to, wow. I was able to perform patience. I was able to perform kindness. But when I got squeezed, like when life hit the fan for me, it didn't come out of me. What came out of me was uh, pride or condemnation or uh, judgment um, or fear, right? Or anger. And those aren't fruit of the spirit. That's not the evidence of God's activity and lordship in my life. So I, I remember being, uh, how do I say this without, how do I say this in a general enough way to not inc- uh, incriminate anyone, but a specific enough way to be helpful. I feel like a lot of my podcasting is like do, doing that. I, I remember being in a class in, in, master, in my master's program and the paragon of this master's program was teaching and the way that he was operating. I remember having this aha moment. And I, I agree with this guy doctrinally. This is back when I was sort of guarding the fences, watching the doctrine. I was like, I just remember it came to me as this thought. And it was, I don't want to be like him. <laughs> Watch the way that he was operating, handling people, his presence. And there was just this. And again, you know, I was 27, so I'm sure I'm full of hubris and pride myself. But there was just a hubris and a bristleliness. I feel like, gosh, I don't want to be like that when I grow up, you know, when I get to be 65. And that started some things for me, started shifting. I, like, I, so I, I found, I was like, well, who do I want to be like when I grow up? Like, who has love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and goodness? Self, who actually exhibits that and exudes that? I'm going to go spend some time with them. Uh, so I, <laughs> I guess for me, I think it reveals how we hold our faith rather, and as much, as much as what we believe as the content of our faith. And the how we hold our faith, uh, I would contend, is as important. I, inter- I interface with these people all the time at my church. I feel like a lot of people come to our church who are, this is their last church stop before they leave the faith. Or... They all have stories. And so here's the thing. I've yet to meet somebody who grew up a Christian and uh, went through some deconstruction or deconversion and left Christianity who doesn't have a story of pain, hurt, sadness. uh, And they perceive at least that some unjust, unrighteous things were done to them. So uh, my my, my first inclination is to, and I do this frequently with people in my church who are who are in that, um, maybe that season of life, or that's their story, is just bear witness to like, yeah, that sucks. I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry when you were in that Bible study and you had questions about how does evolution fit in with our Christian faith, that you were put under church discipline. Like, I'm sorry that happened to you. Like, we should be a people who who can ask that question and hold that question without sort of being put in uh, to the uh, church prison, you know? Um, And I just find that like being the presence of um, sitting with people in their pain and listening to them and taking, taking their story seriously, uh, always knowing there's two sides to the story and you're only hearing one side, like that, that goes a long way to demonstrating what I think is the only thing worth reconstructing a faith on, which is the <laughs> the center of all reality, which is the relational love of the Trinity, which is God in relationship, being uh, giving and receiving mutual love 
that defines who God is for all of the New Testament writers. And we're told without it, anything we think that's true, anything we do is true is rubbish. It's noise. It's, it's meaningless, worthless. The only thing that counts is faith working itself out in love. So I, I just sit with people in love and allow the love then to reveal or draw from them. What is God doing? How can I participate in that? So maybe I can't explain evolution to you. I don't think I can explain evolution to me, but I could, I could perhaps, what, what's at stake for you in that question? Why does that question matter so much to you? If evolution is true, what do you lose? What's threatened? Um, uh, if, if you are, if you, you know, you grew up with this, I'm just using this as one of 10,000 examples, guys, because to get more concrete, I think helps me think it out. But like if, if seven, if the literal seven day, if the earth isn't 6,000 years old, like what does that threaten for you? What does that change? And then what does God want to, how does God want to meet you there? So, so then for me, I know I've said this before. I know this can be nebulous. I think our understandings and conceptualizations of love need to be deconstructed because love is a sentiment in our culture. It's just this nice feel good thing, or it's like sexualized. It's all about uh, people acting on their home runs. But I think that, I think that the love that we see in, uh, God in scriptures, the, the hesed and then the agape, is a, this transformational power. There's nothing stronger in the universe than the love of God revealed in Jesus. And I think it's to our own discredit and maybe even a bit like shame that we have such a paltry, putrid understanding of what love is. and needs to be rehabilitated and reinvigorated with the very life of the Trinity and then trusted uh, just as much as we trust things like uh, you know, violence or being right or, um, or, or, uh, platforms and, and pulpits. You know, I, I love how you're talking about it there. I mean, just, <clears throat> just yesterday I was in a conversation with someone about premarital sex and I think about, you know, we, I think the church sometimes treats that as a very simple issue. Um, you know, yes, I, I think of, <laughs> no, you're right. The, you're right. Keep going. Oh yeah. Like, so it's cliche. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, but it's not. And in the sense that it's not like, that's where we kind of lose our credibility in talking about deconstruction. Um, there's no verse that says thou shalt not live with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you know? Um, and I think about, and where I want to go with this with you you know, I'm saying these names because I want to honor their journey, not necessarily that I agree or disagree, but this is why we're talking about it. We're talking about Josh Harris. We're talking mm. about Rhett and Link, you know, and I guess where I kind of stand on that, you know, there's there's conversations that need to be had about purity culture. There's yes. conversations that need to be had about like going the opposite direction. Um, but there's also just, I look at those three individuals and I guess this is where I'm thankful for a mental health, uh, counselor. That's a wife. I go, holy cow, that's traumatic, yes. especially Josh Harris to be told like to do a docu. I watched the documentary and I was just like, mm. he basically got told by hundreds of people that he ruined their lives. So yeah. I, I guess like these are what's at stake with the issues. I mean, what are your, I mean, it feels like a gut punch, but yeah. like, I mean, where have you kind of walked through with those individuals? Yeah. So you're bringing up another huge 
story uh, construct, this purity culture construct. I think Josh Harris is sort of a paragon of that. You know, he's not certainly the person responsible for it, uh, but he did write a pretty influential book and have a leading voice in it. Um, and I, I just want to say a few things. Josh Harris was doing the best he could. Like Josh Harris was trying to help people. He wasn't trying to ruin people's lives. Uh, and what Josh did was, uh, at least for many people, thoroughly unhelpful. Right. So there's a deep sadness and a compassion. I think we just have to weep uh, about that. Uh, two, I think we, uh, meaning my tribe, Christians, con- more conservative Christians, we really want easy, simple, reproducible, pithy answers. Right. One man, one woman, marriage, God, good, you know, or whatever. Like we just want it to be that. We want caveman language for our sexual ethic. And I, I think, I think. What we see is that, um, well, I mean, here's just a few deconstructing thoughts, okay? Just to, just to maybe, anybody who's still listening, now, now they'll turn the podcast off. Uh, we, we're really, really good in the conservative church about talking about the cultural influences of sort of a liberal sexual ethic, right? So the sexual revolution and all this stuff, like, you got to be, uh, the, the culture's encroaching upon uh, the, the church's ethic of sex, and we have to, like, bar the doors. But but uh, what I'm interested in, uh, conservative Christian tribes, this is my tribe, is what if we own and name and repent of the way that culture has influenced the conservative sexual ethic? What if we stop talking about the lion at the gates and start dealing with the lions that are devouring people inside the gates? And, and like, you know, J- Josh Harris is one of them. So, like, I think purity culture trades off of notions of uh, patriarchy, men and women. Um, it comes out of a long history of men controlling women's bodies, that women's bodies were not their own, that they were, uh, that, you know, women didn't have agency and autonomy. I mean, I think this, okay, okay again, you guys are going to lose viewers, but that's okay because I, I don't have to deal with that when I leave. But like, you know, the only, the only context in which abortion is primarily about choice is in a context where women don't feel that they have control over their bodies. Whatever is happening in abortion, it is way more than choice. But it's not less. And the fact that it's framed like that reveals that for centuries, women felt like they didn't have agency and autonomy over their own bodies. Now, I, I, I want to see uh, I want to see no abortions happen in our in our co- country, but. I want to reckon with the conditions under which abortion became to seem like a good idea, which is women didn't have agency over their bodies. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, that's awful for you. And so then abortion becomes like a protest. Oh yeah, I'll show you. I'll do whatever I want with my body, right? So like, at the same time, it breaks my heart, but I legitimately have compassion over people who feel like they don't have any agency over their body. Right. So that's, that's another example of how purity culture plays into the major ideological divides in our country today. Right. Uh, third thing, like uh, uh, just stop me if uh, I'm going off the rails here. But the third thing is like when we talk about the biblical idea of marriage, like we, we you know, uh, we just proof text. We pick and choose the things we want to reckon with. So we don't reckon with God saying to Saul, hey, if you would have uh, if you would have been faithful to me, I would have given you even more wives. 
Like, what do, what do you do with that? Purity culture. You know what I mean? What do you do with a man, a man, David, who uh, is called a man after God's own heart after he's repented of rape and murder? Praise God. But he was a polygamist till he died. Like, we don't, I, I don't know if we really want to reckon with the fact that polygamy was tolerated and in certain verses, God is actually quoted as saying, I would have, I would have upped your polygamy by the nth degree if you would have been faithful. It would have been a reward for your faithfulness for you to be more polygamist. Now, the reason we don't want to deal with that is because we can't say to the person, Peter, you're talking to, the premarital sex thing, here's God's plan for sexual purity before marriage. Or uh, this is why you can't be a polygamist. And it reveals, I think, even deeper that our hermeneutic, the way we go to Scripture and the way it's authoritative, needs to be rehabilitated because because the way we typically do it, we just cut out those verses and we construct an ethic around the verses we like. And then we, and then we, <laughs> you say all of God's words authoritative, except for those verses in first Samuel, you know? And so like, there's a, a whole lot of things there, but then I think in the moment with that person, I am asking, I am asking the question. Uh, I, I, I'm saying, I'm saying a few things. One, I'm saying we live in the most hypersexualized pornographic culture that makes trillions of dollars a year off of you identifying with your genitals and your hormones and your sex. There has never been a time in the world where uh, internal and external forces, earthly and demonic, aren't preying upon you investing way more meaning and significance and, and purpose in life into an orgasm than right now. So, so whatever we want to say about should we have premarital sex or not, I just want you to know I don't think it's ever been more difficult to think well and wisely and clear about this because not only has the church contributed to problems, purity culture, etc., but the culture is making trillions of dollars off of you to identify with your hormones and act on them. It feels like this little itty bitty spot, like standing on a head of a pen. I've got to in, in a meeting with people who are having premarital sex and want to get married. Like, oh gosh, how do I do this? Um, so it's really hard to talk about this at twenty thousand feet because I think what you're asking isn't a question of knowledge. It's not a question of thirteen bullet points. It's a question of wisdom, and wisdom is knowledge applied in love, and it and it works itself out in a myriad of ways. Right? Wisdom, wisdom can say right next to each other, don't answer a fool according to his folly and answer a fool according to his folly. And you know what I mean? So wisdom has a way of uh, being paradoxical, particular, and uh, works out in 10,000 ways. I guess it, as it pertains to sexuality or sexual ethics and Jesus, I, I just uh, go back. I go back to what Jesus had to say about sex. I look at who Jesus challenges the most with his teachings about sex and it's the people in charge and the people who were religious. So it was men misusing women and justifying it biblically so that they could do whatever they wanted to do. And so, I, yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's do that for, I don't know, like I, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a denomination that's very conservative and traditional in terms of sexual ethics. So I can say all this stuff cause I'm operating in it. I'm submitted to a tradition that is not innovating on the historic Christian understanding of tradition. But what if we, what if we just started dealing with that? 
And I'm not saying like, let's let uh, people who are mad at the church do that. No. What if we as a church started where Jesus started? We take all the ammunition away from the people who attack the church because we would be leading in uh, standing up for sexual minorities, which in Jesus's day were women, right? Standing up for them, protecting them, keeping them from being condemned and getting their just desserts and then blessing them and consecrating them and sending them out to live in faithful ways. Like, what if we did that? Like, try that for like a month. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So for me, if we're going to start with truth, then I want to start with truth with the people, John uh, and Peter, the truth of us in here. Let's speak truth to us. Let's take the plank out of our own eye. Let's speak the truth about planks. And let's let the specs just not, not like endorse them or say, okay, but those aren't our specs, right? Yeah. Like that, that's not my spec over there. This is my plank here. And I, and I can, I can see how my plank has contributed to tons of stuff. So like, I'm, let's do it. Let's go for it. I, I, and I would say this too. I think we need, uh, and this, we do this at Gravity Leadership Academy, but I think for most of us, we don't have a palette that can discern the difference between Jesus truth and condemnation or accusation. Mm. You know, like uh, we, when we hear Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. For many years, I saw that as like a threat. And now I hear it as a benediction. Wow. Now I hear it as like a blessing. Like you're freed. You're freed from this. You, I just liberated you. Like I'm, I'm, and I'm blessing you and I'm sending you rather than don't make me come back here and draw in the dirt again like some idiot, you know? So I, 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 think, I think we actually have a fair, I, I actually have a fairly shallow palette or imagination for what truth that empowers and uh, builds up and invigorates by the spirit. Uh, and my imagination is replete with like shaming, fearful, ac- accusing words. And that's something I just have to repent of, you know, daily. Wow. Uh, I feel like we could go on. Um, we're going to definitely have to have you on for another episode. Um, this is really good. We we like to close the each episode with the question, you know, what does Jesus have to do with it? I know we've already answered, but I think it's important for us to kind of recap. So John and I take a moment to answer this question. The great part about this, Matt, is... Um, if we speak any heresy or anything, you just clean it up. So that's uh, that's what we do. Hey, I'm so. of God endorsing polygamy, so I, I'm not even sure you would even want me to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, we uh, we we trust in faith; the Holy Spirit can uh, fix it. But, anyways, uh, it's all good. I was really challenged by when Matt was talking about the Gospel of John, and I just recently read through John three. And, you know, so we think about John three sixteen. you know, we think we just pass over this verse, like for God so loved the world that he gave. And I think we forget who he's saying that to. He's saying that to Nicodemus, who's a religious leader and who doesn't understand this idea of being born again. And, and he's like, didn't you read the scriptures? Didn't you understand? And you know, we talked about some controversial things. I'm sure there's some of you that you are uncomfortable, but think of that passage right there. Here's someone that 
had the PhD of practical theology or the PhD of theology, and Jesus is in the midst of deconstructing because probably Nicodemus's idea of God is a God that wants me to do the checklist, the God that is constantly making sure that I'm doing the Sabbath, I'm following every law. And here's what Jesus said. He said, I love the world so much I gave. And I wonder for how many of us that if we just were invited by Jesus um, to this issue, how much that would change. So, you know, as I'm thinking about this, you guys, I'm thinking about uh, those people in pain or hurt. I mean, most people don't sin because they think they want to ruin their lives. Most people sin because they think it's a good idea. Like they're really trying to, they're really trying to get the good life or, 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 or fix what's wrong with them. And they're grabbing at things that don't lead to life, right? So I'm reminded of Jesus eating and drinking with sinners. This is the thing that really cranked up the religious leaders for myriad reasons. Um, and I think about maybe 120 people at Pentecost, right? I think about uh, 120 people receive the Spirit at Pentecost. Man, there had to be more than a, what is that? Okay, 70 disciples, let's say the 12 are in that, what, 50? Jesus had to eat and drink with more than 50 sinners, right? Had to. In three years? To get people cranked up? So I think about all the sinners that Jesus ate and drank with that maybe never followed him. And I, I'm, con- I'm confronted with the fact that I, I am so easily offended. I'm so easily anxious. I'm so easily wanting to be in control when I'm around people I disagree with. I'm so easily not able to let people be right where they really are, trusting that God is going to meet them there. I want to, I want to demand and, and ask them to be somewhere else uh, where I want them to be so that God will meet them. So I, I'm just, I think I'm, I'm hearing, uh, as you guys are talking, like a call again from the Lord to be present to people where they're at, trusting that God's work there and that I'm not in control of that. I, I, get, I am free to receive them as they are, to, and to help them, if they're interested, discern where God's at work and help them participate in that. So I'm, I'm hearing that and receiving that challenge as you guys are sharing here. Wow. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the Why God Why podcast. Uh, you can find out more by just searching Gravity Leadership. Um, they are on Twitter, I believe Instagram and Facebook, and they have a website, gravity, gravityleadership.org. Is that correct? gravityleadership.com i believe yeah the dot com dot com so uh make sure you follow matt uh we are at the why god why podcast.com uh you can use the hashtag wgw podcast to share this um make sure you write a review we'd love to hear more from you and uh follow us on instagram facebook and twitter at wgwpodcast.com so thank you so much and uh thanks for being here